to get started. Uh, Logan, our children's minister, has put together this cool little handout for taking notes. Uh, primarily, I, I suppose, for kids in elementary ages right there. It's kind of got that look at it. But I mean, if you as an adult want to grab one of these too, we'd love to have you take notes. I actually take notes during any sermon I listen to, except for my own. It's kind of hard to take notes while I'm, li- while I'm preaching. Uh, but I find it really helpful. So if, uh, if that's something you want to do, those are on the back with some pens and pencils back there. We'd love to have you participate in that way. Uh, I, I find it a good thing. I think that's one of those things that kind of helps us uh, keep track. And especially at a day like today where we're going old school, right? You know, we're going pen and paper, uh, no technology. So if you guys didn't bring your Bibles today or if your phone doesn't have that Bible app, uh, you're going to have to listen really, really carefully. Uh, this did happen to the Apostle Paul. It talks about it in the book of Acts when he couldn't get his PowerPoint to work. It's, uh, it's happened before. And they managed to, to make it through. So a couple things that we want to start off with. This is the second to last sermon in this series. And I just don't want anybody to feel like if they haven't been here yet, they can't like figure out what's going on. Because I think you're going to be able to just jump right into what we're talking about. But I wanted to start by asking this question. Um, you as parents, you, you who are parents, who have been parents, or who have had parents, um, have you ever had to help your kids kind of put two and two together? I mean, things that you did not think you should have to explain to anybody, you realize as a parent, you actually have to help your, you know, your child understand that this thing relates to this other thing that should be obvious, but somehow isn't. Like, for example, and this is probably something I think a lot of people struggle with, our little guy doesn't like to eat at mealtimes, but as soon as we're like, hey buddy, time for bed, he's like, I'm hungry. And you feel a little guilty because he's burning calories like crazy. And you're thinking like, well, if I don't feed him and he starves to death during the night, I'm going to look bad as a parent. It's not going to be great for the family. So you're like, what do you do? And you try to tell him like, look, I just want you to understand, friend, that if you eat at mealtime, you won't be hungry at bedtime. Now, I know it's a delay tactic. I know there's some psychology going on there. But I'm trying to, we're trying to help him understand those two things. Or like when your kid comes to you and they're like, I just ate all all the candy that I got, you know, for Halloween or Christmas or whatever, and unrelated, my stomach also feels kind of bad. And you're like, oh, I want you to understand that actually those two things, they go together. Like, if, remember when I said don't eat all the candy and you ran into your room and hid in the closet and ate all the candy and now you feel sick? Those two things fit together. Um, and, and, you know, as a parent, you're just trying to get your kids to understand sometimes how things are connected, how, how choices have consequences, right? And they get a little bit more sophisticated as they get older in terms of how you're trying to pull all those dots, connect all those dots. So today we're going to do something, and it may feel a little bit like we're connecting dots that for you may feel obvious. They're not obvious for me. They're not obvious for everyone. But I want you to understand we're going to connect a couple little dots. And throughout the whole time I've been preparing this, I've just had it in the back of my mind that this is going to be one of those sermons that just doesn't sit well with people. You know what I'm talking about? You've had me preach some of those before, and you're just like, ah, I'm not real comfortable with that line of reasoning, Patrick. But I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those. All right? And so sometimes that's good because sometimes you need to be challenged, and sometimes that's uh, not good because you just disagree with what I have to say. So we'll see how this goes. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to present my thesis statement, and then we're going to try to, like, back it up. Prove it. I'm just going to present it, and then I'm going I'm to give it to you. You're going to chew on it. If you feel like you got to leave uh, because you just can't handle it, uh, then leave whatever you need to do. But, but I, I, I'm going to present this right now, and you guys can do with it what you like. All right? Here it is. I made it sound more controversial than it's going to be. If you want to learn to be like Jesus, you have to learn to like the church. 
If you want to learn to be like Jesus, you have to learn to like the church. All right, just let that sink in. Think about it a little bit. We've been preaching through this passage in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we, we, I, I want to readdress it, actually. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 15. I just kind of want to read through uh, this text of Scripture. And one of the cool things about technology is I still have my technology. You guys don't. So I, if I'm looking at the screen, I'm not looking at a blank screen like a weirdo. I got something up here. Uh, but I want to read this passage of Scripture through you because we've been preaching through this passage of Scripture. And I think we're going to find it really valuable because this passage of Scripture was an epic moment in history. Like we read about, you know, the Gettysburg Address or you read about the Magna Carta or you read about, you know, Roman Empire. This was an epic moment in history, but it doesn't get the attention because it was an epic moment like in church history. But it changed the fundamental course of the world. This passage that we're reading changed the the course of the world. I mean, this was a big deal. This was a moment in history. Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples, and what he says is going to have ripple effects that are still hitting us today from this passage of Scripture. It's a big deal. Now you kind of want to read it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. He says, but what about you? Remember, he's asked his disciples, who do people say I am? But what about you, 12? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boom. Now we don't, we read that and that's not as exciting as we, uh, as we might think, but he was saying something significant. He was like committing a treasonous act against Rome and against the temple, against the Pharisees, against the Sadducees, against the religious leaders of the day by declaring Jesus the Messiah. It was a big deal. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father in heaven. God inspired you to know this. And Jordan talked about how God still kind of inspires us today to, to know and live and do things. Verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we discussed last week how like, this thing is unstoppable. So even when you feel like it's not working, keep working. Even when you feel like you shouldn't, loving people isn't helping, or showing mercy isn't helping, or showing grace isn't helping, keep, do the, keep doing those things. Because this church is unstoppable. What Jesus is establishing will not die. It will not see death. It will not see decay. And then this, this passage we want to look at today, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, says this. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Such a strange passage. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I think we can kind of get with this up till this passage. I think we're kind of following along, we're listening to Jesus, we're like, the church will never end, it will never see decay, woohoo, you know, we're excited. And then we get to this passage and we're like, uh, what is going on here? Whatever will be bound on earth will be bound, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You, you kind of read that, if you're looking along with me, you kind of read that and you're like, I'm missing something here. There's something I don't get. There's something that's probably lost in translation. There is something here that is just not making sense to me. Now this passage right here, oh, I'm pointing up here like it's there, this passage that you cannot see up here, this passage is where we get the idea of Peter, St. Peter, standing at the pearly gates, letting people into heaven, right? You know all those jokes? A guy, a lawyer walks up to St. Peter standing at the pearly gates and, you know, whatever. I'm not going to finish the joke because 
Probably not church appropriate. But it's that idea, right? The idea that St. That Peter is standing at the pearly gates like some sort of divine bouncer. And as people are coming up, he's looking them up and down and saying, you're in, you're not, you're in, you're not, you're in, you're not. And it comes from this passage. And this idea has kind of lodged itself in popular culture. It's not a very substantive, uh, substantive take on the passage. But this is the idea that Peter's in heaven. He's the keys of the kingdom. The kingdom is somehow this, this other place. And he's letting certain people in and he's not letting other people in. That's the idea. And I just want you to know that's not what this passage is talking about. Um, let's talk a little bit about binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. It's such an interesting concept, right? Binding and loosing. Uh, so let me give you a little uh, moral dilemma. Let us, let's say you are at a uh, local coffee shop. And let's say you uh, go into that coffee shop. Maybe you're just there to work on a sermon. Maybe a sermon about Matthew, hypothetically, right? You're just there, and you go to a long communal table, but nobody else is at the table. It's got a bunch of seats, and you sit down, and you realize that on that table is what looks like a little gift card to that establishment. And you see that there, and you think, well, somebody probably just set it down, or somebody ran to the bathroom. They're going to come back out and get it. So you get to work on what you're doing. Time goes by. You get in the zone. You're studying. You're thinking through. Maybe you're thinking through Matthew 16, 19. And about 90 minutes later, you kind of come out of like your study mode. And you realize that gift card is still there. And you start thinking, huh, I wonder maybe somebody just, you know, ran it out of money and left it there and then went on their way. But the cheapskate in you is starting to think like, what if there's money on that card? What if I could buy, what if someone, hypothetically, oh, someone could buy themselves a free coffee uh, with whatever money on the card. So you pick it up and you go up to the barista and you're like, oh, I just wanted to see if there's any money on this. And she swipes it and she says, there's $8 on it. And you in the back of your mind, you're thinking, hallelujah, Jesus, thank you. You have blessed me for studying your, you have blessed someone for studying your word. So uh, you're rewarding them with a free uh, coffee drink. Now, you have two options when you find that this card has some money on it. And, and I'm, I'm curious. I'm actually going to come down the audience. We're going to do this very often. I'm curious because we're going to get a little poll here, a little straw poll. How many of you would raise your hands? How many of you would be in the category of find the owner, turn it into the barista, somebody's going to come claim it? Okay, uh, about 60%. How many of you are like, you know what? It doesn't have a name on it. The person left it. They haven't been here for 90 minutes. Jesus has given me some free coffee. How many of you are in that category? All right, all right. A, a few less. Okay, let me, can I, I'm just really, can I borrow your microphone here, Matt? All right, so those of you that were in the uh, turn it into the barista category, raise your hands one more time. Anybody turn in the barista category? Okay, uh, some of, oh, let me just ask one more time. How many of you are in the I will raise my hand because I know I should, but I would probably buy myself a Frappuccino category, but I don't want anybody to know it. <laughs> There's a few of you. All right, very good. We'll have the elders talk to you later. All right, turn it into the barista category. I'm going to ask, now why would you turn it into the barista? Give me your moral reasoning. Oh, I would just feel better about it because I would think it wasn't mine and somebody else, uh, it belonged to somebody else. Uh, that seems very wise and smart, right? That seems like a good thing to do, that, right? I mean, it's not ours. It belongs to somebody else. Somebody else spent the money. It belongs to them, right? We shouldn't spend it. How many of you, who raised your hand and said you're in the I'll buy myself something nice category? All right, over here. I knew I could count on Alex. When I was thinking about this sermon... <laughs> I honestly thought, you know, Alex is going to be on this, this side. All right, Alex, what's your moral reasoning for this? You said it was like eight bucks? Yeah. If I left it, I would expect somebody else to take it. And in that case, 
it, they forfeited their right to that gift card when they left it there for an hour and a half unattended on a table or whatever, whatever hypothetically happened to somebody. Yeah, so it's a little bit of money. You yourself would expect somebody else to take it. They forfeited their right to it when they left it at the table. Now, we have two conflicting moral conclusions here. On one hand, you have an elder's wife who has been a Christian for many, many years. Not trying to weigh this at all, but just if you were thinking offhand, like if we have these two moral observations, and one is, is by our very own Pam Ross, and one is by our very own Alex May, who is a very wise individual, has come up through youth group. I, I know him very well. But if you were to pick, all right, now some of you may have like had one idea, and some of you may have had another idea. How many of you now would be like, I think we got to go with the Pam Ross moral? Uh, yeah, all right. Wow, less people. Yeah, all right. Interesting. <laughs> I apologize. I thought more people would agree with you. That was very well-reasoned, rational thought. How many of you would go with the Alex, uh, Alex May uh, thought too? All right, we got a few both. So what we have just done is called, in Hebrew vernacular, is called binding and loosing. What we've done is we've taken like a moral situation and we've asked ourselves a question and we said, does this thing qualify as stealing, right? That's the basic moral question. And Pam said, yes, it does. And uh, Alex said, no, it doesn't. And those are two schools of thought. And we would say, Alex has loosed taking a gift card from the category of stealing, and Pam has bound taking a gift card from the category of stealing. That's the idea of binding and loosing, is that we don't know all the things there are some gray areas, and we have to come to determinations about what would most please God in a specific situation, and we would bind this practice or loose this practice in terms of how it is bound or loosed from the Old Testament law. So we would say that if we follow the school of Alex, we have loosed this practice. If we follow the school of Pam, we have bound this practice. That's binding and loosing. It's teaching vernacular. It's teaching terms. It's, it has to do with keeping the law. It has to do with trying to figure out, does this specific act please God or not please God in some way? Binding and loosing. That is exactly what it is. Um, earlier this week, I asked Jordan what he would hypothetically do, uh, and I thought I will get a very reasoned, rational, uh, theological, doctrinal answer, and Jesus... Uh, Jesus. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Jesus, starts with a J, Jordan said uh, it was eight bucks. He goes, uh, it's not worth it for eight bucks. I would leave it. So for Jordan, the stakes need to be higher. He would steal more, but not less. 20 bucks, maybe he would steal it, right? You know, so just, just so you know. All right, just so you know who you're dealing with up here. Uh, hypothetically, hypothetically, let me tell you this story. Hypothetically, let's say that person that had, had found it had agreed with the Alex school of thought and decided that it was not stealing because they really hadn't thought through it morally and also they had not spoke with Pam about the issue. <laughs> and they went and bought themselves something nice and immediately, maybe hypothetically, when they turned away from the counter, there was a lady standing there making eye contact with them, looking at the card, looking back up at them, and this person hypothetically had to say, uh, is, is this your card? And that person said, yeah, where did you find it? Well, I may, have, I may have just treated myself to something on your dime. Like, I feel a little bad. I wasn't wearing my Woodbury t-shirt. This person wasn't wearing their Woodbury t-shirt, which is probably good. I, I put more back on the card than what was on there, so we're all good. But I felt a little bad. I felt a little guilty about that. Um, binding and loosing. This is trying to decide 
what things do we attach to morality and what things do we not. And in this room, there's lots of different ideas and lots of differences of opinion about what is and what isn't. This is not new. This is not something different. This is, this is just the way things were. In fact, there's a whole collection of ancient Hebrew literature that is dedicated to this idea of binding and loosing. This is about moral, spiritual formation. And I want to read you just one example. This is from their commentary on the old law. And so one of the questions somebody brought up is, if you found a dove in the street, now I know this is not a situation we deal with, but if you found a dove in the street, and a dove was something that would be owned and would have escaped from a cage, if you found a dove in the street, do you have to, is it your moral obligation to find the owner, or do you get finders keepers? Is that the rule? And they, they debated and debated and debated about what you do. And this is what they came up with. And you can look this up. I'm not making this up. What they came up with is if you found the dove within 75 feet of a cage, any cage, you had to take it back to that cage. If you found the dove 75 feet away or further away from a cage, it was yours. 75 feet, 50 cubits. That was the moral limit. And I just can imagine there were people like seeing a dove and like, come here, come here, little, you know. Get a little further away. If you found it, this is true, if you found it exactly 75 feet from two cages, because somebody asked, what if you found it 75 feet from two cages? Then you sold the dove and you split the difference between the two owners. Now, I was reading this in this commentary on Hebrew law and this next passage. I just have to share it with you because it was awesome. I'm not making this up. This is the text. This is the ancient text. It says this. Rabbi Jeremiah then raised a dilemma. This is somebody who's in this group. They're debating, they're talking, they're discussing. Rabbi Jeremiah then raised a dilemma. If one foot of the bird is within the 75-foot limit and what one foot is outside it, what is the law? Here's the response in this ancient text. Promise I'm not making this up. It was for this question that Rabbi Jeremiah was thrown out of the study for he was apparently wasting everyone's time. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I love it. There's always that one smart aleck. And you know he had been warned. You know the other rabbis were like, seriously, Jeremiah, one more shot or you're out. Like, I'm not kidding this time. Binding and loosing. It was about spiritual formation. And listen to this passage when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bound on earth, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. I am giving you the spiritual moral authority to determine spiritual formation in the lives of believers. Now, we read that, and that, well, maybe doesn't matter, right? That's a huge deal, because Jesus is turning over to his followers, in this case, to Peter and the apostles, and we'll see later, the church. Jesus is turning over that moral authority to determine spiritual formation to this collective of people that claim to follow him. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. We think of spiritual formation and moral authority as something that is just about the individual. And Jesus is saying, uh 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 uh. It's something about the collective. It's something that I'm giving to the gathering of people who are Jesus followers. We together are going to determine what this looks like and what this means. And I'm giving you spiritual, moral authority to do this. A little controversial, maybe, to say that the church, the gathering of Jesus followers, has the spiritual and moral authority to declare what spiritual formation looks like in the individual lives of a believer. That's a big church. Do you understand what I just said and what a big deal that is? That's a huge deal. Now, that may be the thing that you disagree with. 
Because a statement like that is a little controversial. Makes you a little uncomfortable. Makes you shift in your seat a little bit. Like, wait a second. Are you saying somebody else may be responsible? Somebody else may have authority over my life to, to help me determine what is right and wrong and what I should do and what Jesus following looks like? Are you saying somebody else? It's not just me. I'm not the master of my own domain. I'm not the captain of my own ship. I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable to think like that. I, I'm just not sure I, I feel good about that. It makes us shift in our seats a little bit. makes us wonder a little bit. makes us say, Patrick, I'm not sure. I'm going to put that on the back burner. Maybe I'll think about it and come back to you in a couple years. Maybe on my deathbed I'll tell you whether or not I agree with you. But for now, I am doing my own thing. It's a little controversial. My younger sister went through a vegetarian phase when she was uh, quite a bit younger. And it was purely the, I like animals, they have cute faces and I don't want to eat them kind of vegetarianism, you know what I'm talking about? It wasn't that like, you know, real moral, like this is bad for my body or anything like that. But I distinctly remember, being, I was a little embarrassed, is probably why I remember it. I remember going into a Burger King with her, and uh, all right, you know, you get to order. Uh, and of course I heard her like, you know, double whopper, whatever. And uh, she comes in, and she, right next to me, and I, this is why I wanted to pretend like I wasn't with her. She was like, I would like a hamburger, and she literally said, I would like a hamburger, hold the hamburger. Now, I think, and I could be wrong, if you're vegetarian, that's fine. I think what you have done is you have effectively removed the thing that qualifies that as being a hamburger. You are no longer ordering a hamburger. You are ordering some bread and some veggies and some mayonnaise or whatever it is. But that's not a hamburger. You have removed the thing that makes it a hamburger. And I moved myself further away so they wouldn't think that we were related, you know. And I know people are like, that's perfectly normal. People do that. No, you cannot say, you cannot say this sentence. I would like a hamburger, hold the hamburger. You cannot say that, because then what am I supposed to give you? Nothing? It has become increasingly popular to take this independent route with church. To say something like this. I like Jesus, but not the church. And we get why people would say that, right? Now, we're all in the room here. We showed up on a Sunday morning, so of course we like church. We're here. We like church mostly sometimes, right? We're here. But in our society, popular culture, and I know in the back of some of our minds, we feel like sometimes we like Jesus, but we don't like the church. We like Jesus, but we don't like the church. And we get that, right? Sometimes the church has been problematic, They've done and said things that we want to disassociate ourselves from. We go up to the counter door to the hamburger and we want to move away because we don't like what that other person that claims to be a Christian is doing. We don't want them to associate that person with us. I like Jesus, but not the church. Like, like I, there are times where we do like Jesus, but we don't like the church. And it almost has a spiritual quality to it. It's like a person is graduated, right? They're on to a higher level of education once they've attained to Christianity outside of the church. That's real enlightenment. I like Jesus but not the church. Me and Jesus, the church is kind of third-wheeling it. This, this position, religious position, has become so popular that studies are being done about people who hold this position. Studies, statistics. And let me share with you some of the stats because I think that they're interesting. These are people who like, listen, people who like Jesus but don't like the church. These are stats, okay? Can't argue with numbers, right? Um, People who disassociate from the church but claim to associate with Jesus are four times less likely to talk about God in a conversation. Okay, that seems like it would be true. They are 50% less likely to read the Bible. They are less likely to pray. They are less likely to be charitable and giving. They're less likely to be engaging with their neighbors. Are we sensing any trend here? You sense a trend? 
Now you're like, wait, 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 you're padding the stats because you're on church. Of course, Patrick gets up on stage at a church and says, what do, what do we think about church? What is Patrick going to say? Oh, he's real objective, right? This is his livelihood. He's going to be real objective about what the church is or isn't or shouldn't be. But are you sensing a little bit of a trend of people who have disassociated themselves from the church but claim to like Jesus? Think about this. And this is huge. People who love Jesus but disassociate from the church are less likely to do the things that look like Jesus. Ooh, that made me uncomfortable, didn't it? It made you uncomfortable. Because you don't want your spiritual formation to be tied to a bunch of people that you sometimes disagree with. We don't like that. Wait, Jesus, hold on. You've given Peter the keys to the kingdom. You've given the apostles and broadly the church the authority of spiritual formation in our lives. Nope, 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 nope. I don't know that I'm comfortable with that at all. Well, think about it. You'll have to talk with me about it later. But people who love Jesus but disassociate from the church are less likely to do things that look like Jesus. To be completely fair, there were two categories that people who disassociate from church but love Jesus are better at. You want to know what those are? Because maybe you're thinking, hmm, what, I need to list my pros and cons. They are, number one, more likely to spend time in nature reflecting on spiritual thoughts. That's nice. Yeah, that's a good thing. We should do that, right? That's a good thing. And some of you are like, yeah, it sounds like church to me. That's what I want to do. The second thing that they're more likely to do, and I promise I'm not making this up. I can give you the study statistics later. They're more likely to do yoga. <laughs> now, I was, I'm thinking that the interviewer was like, oh, huh, you like to commune with nature. Shot in the dark here. Do you also like yoga? You do? I'm so surprised, right? You know, I don't know if that was what it was like. And this is not to say that yoga and communing with nature are bad things. But this is to say that when we disassociate ourselves from the church, we're disassociating ourselves from something important. That an authority, Matthew 16, 19, that Jesus conferred upon his followers for spiritual formation. To be like Jesus, he has given his followers the authority to work that out in our lives, in one another's lives. That's pretty interesting to me. Pretty interesting. Ultimately, when we distance ourselves from Jesus' followers, we ultimately distance ourselves from Jesus. That's oh, a fun sentence, isn't it? When we distance ourselves from Jesus' followers, we distance ourselves from Jesus. By the way, this isn't about church attendance. It's not. I, I'm, people hear that all the time. It's not. You can be disassociated from church and be here every Sunday. You can. We know that, right? You know that. You've done that, right? You've come to church and you're just checked out. We know that. This is not about church attendance. This is so much bigger, so much more broad. Joe Hellerman wrote about this topic and he said this, and, and I want you to listen to this. This quote is so good. He said, we should not be surprised to discover that in our attempt to exchange the New Testament's community-centered approach to the Christian life for our culture's individualistic view of spiritual formation has skewed our concept of Jesus. Jesus, listen, is little more than a divine therapist who aids, in the in, aids the individual Christian in his or her personal quest for spiritual enlightenment and self-discovery. So, as a product of my culture, he says, I move from church to church and marriage to marriage, desperately hoping that I can somehow improve the quality of my life while avoiding the redemptive relationships in which God has placed me. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, the thing that Jesus instituted to create us like him. And here's the thing. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to learn to like the church. That's a big deal. We can't remove the hamburger from the hamburger 
and still have the hamburger. Grayson Gilbert doesn't mince words, and trigger warning. He says, saying I love Jesus but not the church is another way of saying I don't love Jesus. The body of Christ. I get this makes us uncomfortable. There are bad churches. There are abusive leaders. There are people who have been wounded by Christian relationships. Jesus understood that, believe it or not. He wasn't surprised by that, that reality. And, and maybe you're thinking, whoa, 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 wait. Does a person have to go to church to be a Christian? No. Just in the same way, a baby doesn't have to be raised by a family. He can be raised by wolves and live in a jungle. It worked for Tarzan, so it should work for us, right? No. Can we have a relationship with God outside the church? Sure. But, but why in the world would we want to? Why would we want to when God has created this gathering of believers to draw us into closer relationship with him? Jesus taught that we experience spiritual formation in the context of our relationship to his followers. In other words, if you want to learn to be like Jesus, you have to at least learn to like the church. Paul wrote that even imperfect churches are still the primary means, uh, or a primary means maybe, uh, by which we become like Christ. Ephesians 4.12 says this, He gave to his church, he gave uh, roles and authority to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The body of Christ, the church, this gathering of people, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become more mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. But let's just remove the gathering. Let's just remove the people. Let's just remove the, the roles, the redemptive relationships from that passage. You can't. You can't remove that and still have the thing that we're talking about. If you want to learn to be like Jesus, you have to learn to like the church. So what do we do with all this? What do we do? Because I know we've either bored you or made you uncomfortable, maybe a little angry. Maybe some of you are like, you know, I just, I can't take that. You're getting up on stage telling me that I have to have a relationship with the church in order to be like Jesus. If you want more proof then take your Bibles and you can read starting in about Matthew 1.1 to the end of the book of Revelation and you will see this theme over and over and over and over. It's like someone saying, prove to me the sky is blue. Go outside and look up. Prove to me grass is green. Go outside and look down. It is all over scripture that he uses his body of believers to form us and shape us and help us and counsel us and guide us and give us wisdom and help us through problems and issues and struggles. We, we know that some of those deepest, darkest times, sometimes we've just felt the presence of Christ, but sometimes it's because somebody else was the presence of Christ for us. Somebody else gave us some advice or some thoughtful feedback or something that helped us. Somebody else showed us what it meant to be like Christ. And he's, God uses that as our spiritual formation. So, what do we do with all this? If you want your, you, your family, your kids, spouse, to experience Jesus to a greater degree, to experience spiritual formation to a greater degree, maybe participation with Jesus' people needs to be a greater priority. This may look like deprioritizing other stuff in your life. And listen, I'm not talking about church attendance. I don't know how many times I need to say this, but I feel like that's what people default to. Well, I wasn't at church last week, and now you're preaching to me. No, not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about engaging your life in the life of other believers. And maybe this means we need to deprioritize other stuff that is drawing us away from church fellowship, church people. It may look like making some relational connections that haven't been very well maintained if you're a longtime church member. Maybe you've got relationships that aren't very good. Maybe you come and you really haven't really tried. You've kind of like, oh, I'd like to get to know people a little bit better, but I'm not really going to put myself out there. Maybe it means just like stepping out and engaging to a greater degree. Maybe it takes making, taking a hard look at what our relationship with Jesus' people actually looks like. But... If we are going to learn to be like Jesus, this is the last time I'm going to say this, if we're going to learn 
to be like Jesus, we have to learn to like the church. Matthew 16, 19 says, I give you, Peter, the other apostles, you can read about this other places, Matthew 18, 18 as well, but I give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want you collectively as a body of people who are trying to become like me to help one another and to carry one another and to bear one another's burdens and to love one another into becoming like me and making a difference as I would in this world. And that's what it's all about. Let's pray and then we're going to be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, I know that some of what we said today is, is difficult. And Lord, I pray that you give uh, me the humility to know where I've been wrong. Uh, but I pray that you would give us collectively the humility to know where maybe we've been wrong. Uh, where maybe we've tried to do it on our own. And we, we hope that we can get through life without the connections that you've put in our lives. The spiritual relationships that you've put in our lives to help us. Lord, I pray that we would understand the value and authority of what church means, Lord. I know there's people who struggle with that. There's people who feel condemned by what we've talked about today, but I pray that they wouldn't. I pray that they would understand that you have life planned for us, Lord. You want us to experience deeper and greater spiritual relationship with you and help us to understand that that comes with experiencing deeper and greater relationships with the people around us. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the example that we have in him. We thank you for the ability to follow him, and we thank you for this body of believers that is all stepping in the same direction, uh, trying to be like Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.